0: Brooklyn, New York. I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Ball. And this is a bonus episode of the Vine Pair Podcast. Happy and holidays! Yeah, you know, you should feel so so great that we gave you this gift um and yeah so this episode we're going to talk about the wines of alenteju and so first a word from our sponsor the wines of alenteju so this episode of the vine pair podcast is sponsored by the wines of alenteju looking to discover new wines experience quality blends and support environmentally conscious producers i mean we all should be i think right exactly yeah exactly then alenteju is the place for you this region in southern Portugal boasts an array of native grapes, a centuries-old history of blending, unbroken traditions of amphora wines, and an award-winning sustainability program. Ask your local wine store for a wine from Alentejo, or order online from one of our small business retail partners. And of course, we'll have some notes in the in the stores, you know, in the in the show notes of this podcast. So. We can we can say who some of those small business retail partners are, um, but yeah, man, I think people got to get into Portuguese wine. So I'm really excited to talk about these wines today, Zach. So why don't you kick it off and introduce our special guest?
1: Please. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's a, it's a thrill to uh, be joined by uh, Evan Goldstein, who's a master sommelier. He's a uh, a man of, I don't even know how to say it. Evan, I don't know that you recall this, but I have attended a few different masterclasses that you've taught over the years. Um, I was just one of those people in the back who were trying not to look too in over their head. Uh, but, uh, but it's been a pleasure to learn from you over the years and and uh, it's super exciting to talk about these wines. Portugal is high on the list of places I have not been that I, that I wish to visit one day when we can do that again. So thank you so much for being here.
2: Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. And I, I hope, um, I hope if you were in the back and sitting there quietly and, and, and all that, I didn't pick on you or anything, anything <laughs> crazy. Uh, but I'm delighted to, uh, number one, uh, be um, in your sphere and in your, your orbit, if you will. And I'm uh, doubly delighted to be talking about uh, a place that I know and love well, uh, which is Portugal in general and the Alentejo specifically.
0: Well, so, Evan, before we kick it off, like, I just want to let you know. You have full permission to pick on Zach as much as you want. So, it's a, it's a podcast know, tradition. If that's if that's like you know yeah it's it's all good if you did um, <laughs> yeah. at least with me. So um, so yeah, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited. Can you can we kick it off by you giving us just a brief overview of the wines of Valençayu, so that you know those who are unfamiliar with, you know, this region. Also, I, I would say potentially unfamiliar with Portugal, Portuguese wines in general can kind of get a clear picture before we like really get geeky with it. Absolutely. No, it's always
2: important that you land the plane uh, gradually from 30,000 feet before you just try totally. to pop it on the ground. So let's let's give a little bit of uh, d- a direction on Portugal first, then I'll get into the Alentejo specifically. So Portugal, is, as many of your uh, listeners know, sits on the Iberian uh, Peninsula of Southwest Europe. It runs roughly 350 miles long, a little less than 150 miles wide, which makes it just a tad over 35,000 square miles, which um, to equate for those people who are spatially challenged makes the country about the same size as, say, Indiana or the state of Maine. Which is very interesting is despite its relative diminutive size, it is the ninth largest uh, planted vineyard acreage in the world at over 480,000 acres, uh, which is amazing when you think about that, uh, because here's a country that's the size of, of, like I said, Indiana or Maine. And the United States, which is infinitely larger, ranks just sixth. So we're just a couple of clicks ahead. um, And and, uh, they're 11th in production compared to us at fourth, which means that, you know, pretty much any place that you can plant grapes, you will plant grapes. And that's not just in large vineyard areas, but people's front yards, people's backyards as they load their lug boxes and take them to the local co-op at harvest time, etc. So they do make a, a fairly good volume of wine. And they're also, by the way, just for your reader's information, the largest per capita consumers of wine in the world, more so than the French and certainly a lot more so than us. Now, Alan Teju, sits sort of in the center uh, east of the country. Uh, It's sort of on the border of Spain on its far eastern side, and it covers approximately a third of the land mass of the country. So it really is a a big area. It's almost all of the south and um, a good chunk of the the center and even pushing northwards there. Um, Itself is about the size of Massachusetts, if you wanted to again give it a reference. And being inland and being Mediterranean, although having some areas that um, have, uh, for lack of better words, um, horizontal traverses that go out. There's actually a, a what we call an Alentejo Costa or a coastal area that uh, that actually touches the coast, but the rest of it's clearly Mediterranean, clearly inland, and um, very very hot in the uh, summer. You know, very cool in the winter, and um, gets its rain. You know, uh, during the winter months. You know, when it does get rain. So uh, um, a pretty neat area to visit, and uh, wonderful people. Uh, we'll talk all about it.
1: So let's maybe jump in and talk a little bit about grapes here? Because I think mm-hmm. obviously when we're talking about a region that is, is relatively unfamiliar to people, uh, like Alentejo, one of the things that most everyone wants to know is, okay, well, what do they make the wines out of? So can you maybe, Evan, just walk us through kind of the important varieties, both white and red in the region?
2: Yeah, most definitely. And and white and red is a good place to start because although rosé uh, is a happening thing in uh, Portugal in general, in Alentejo specific, it's not the biggest deal. It's mostly red. Um, the area is approximately, you know, uh, 75% red, then about, um, you know, the balance of that in white and just a little bit of rosé. Uh, the grapes, um, again, remembering that we're in Iberia, that long before there was Spain and long before there was Portugal, there was Iberia. So a lot of the grapes that you hear about um, in Alentejo in Portugal in general, you'll also hear about in Spain, although under different names. So uh, from a grape variety standpoint, the most planted grape is a grape called Aragonese, and Aragonese uh, is the same grape that we would call Tempranillo if we were on the other side of the of the border over there. Um, and that's a very important grape uh, for reds. Uh, the grape that's probably the most celebrated red for the Alentejo, though, specifically is Alicante Boucher, which, although it was developed in France post um, re- address phylloxera issues, a couple hundred plus years ago. Um, it is a grape that is probably more associated with Portugal and specifically with the Alentejo. It's their signature grape and, and a grape that they they love and, and do really well with. They have other grapes there. They have Althroxero as a grape, which carries no other... Um, uh, geography, home outside of outside of Portugal. Um, you have, um, geez, uh, God, I'm sitting here drawing a blank right now, but you have lots of different grapes. You have grapes that are obscure, you have Tinta Miuda, you have Tinto Grosso, which are grapes that, again, you find primarily in that region, but I would say Aragonese uh, and Alfroxero would probably be uh, the two big ones along with um, Alicante Boucher. And then for whites, the, it's really um, the workhorse grape of the region is one a grape called Antão Weich. And Antão is the Portuguese word for Anthony. Weich would just be V-A-Z, the word. And what you find in Portugal is it's so many grapes, whether it's, you know, Uh, Maria Gomez uh, or Fernand Pires or, in this case, Anton Weich, happened to be named for people whose vineyards those grapes were um, essentially discovered in and propagated in the future. So a long time ago, in the Alentejo, somebody named Anton Weich had a vineyard and everyone (laughs) loved his grape and planted it everywhere and did that too. And it's a grape that's unique to to not only the region and their most important grape, but I frankly haven't seen it anywhere else, which I think in the... um, climate uh, change world in which we're living in right now. It's a grape that does very well in warm climates, and I think you'll start to see get some uh, global celebration there. They have Arinto, which is a grape that came from Bruselas in the Lisbon area originally, and we find it up in Dadoro too, but that's a grape that does well in Alentejo primarily for acidity reasons, and um, Gosh, uh, Circial, a few others, but I would say Anton Weiss, basic focus grape if you're thinking about getting No Alentejo wines for white and Alicante Boucher and Aragonesh for reds.
0: So first of all, I mean, now now I know what, what my goal in life is. It's that, you know, in the future, we will all be drinking Adam Teeter and it'll be delicious. <laughs> uh, that is that is just amazing. So in terms of Alicante Boucher, what, what style of wines are we seeing um, made from this grape uh, so well, if you know if would i if i were to find wines from from this grape on the shelf obviously from the region, what would I be looking for and what would I be experiencing?
2: Yeah, well, first of all, what's interesting about this grape, which was developed, like I said, by crossing uh, Alicante, mm-hmm. which is the uh, Southern French colloquial name for Grenache with Petit Boucher, which was a grape that was crossed years uh, earlier for, for volume and, and and stuff like that. Uh, you get a wine that, first of all, it's very interesting. It's, it's a Tanturier grape, which is to say when you squeeze it, the juice that comes out is red. There's not that many grapes. The uh, the mission grape that, that we know of here in California, or the um, Priola Chica, as it's known down in South America, Pais, um, is another grape. But it's it's very deeply colored. Um, the wines are sort of inky and opaque in appearance. Uh, they tend to be a little bit more on the rustic side of things. So they're uh, fairly tannic. They're fairly big. They've got ample acidity um, and very uh, wonderful um sort of compendium, if you will, of dark black fruit flavors, and then things that run literally from sort of an ink, like uh, India ink, not that we drink India ink, except perhaps when you were in grammar school, but uh, <laughs> iodinesque iodinesque like things, seaweed notes, and then notes of meat, and olives, and, and garigue, as we would know it, or underbrush and herbs. It's a very cool grape. But what I will tell you in general that people should know is, don't expect it to make light, elegant wines. It is a bold grape. And while it uh, makes fabulous, um, big, powerful wines on its own, it's often added uh, to other wines in the Alentejo for color and tannin and rusticity to, to, to sort of add to the mix.
1: And would you typically then find uh, wines made from alicante Boucher to be blends themselves with maybe uh, the alicante Boucher as the, the principal variety, or are you getting a lot of, um, you know, sort of a 100% or nearly 100% alicante Boucher from, uh, from the Alentejo?
2: I would say the answer is sort of yes, yes, and actually yes. So not only do you (laughs) see people who are making pure Alicamp Boucher wines, and some of those wines are fabulous and will be, um, varietally labeled, if you will. Somebody can go out and say, I'd like to get a bottle of Alicante Boucher from the Alentejo and find it. But perhaps more importantly and more commonly, you would see Alicante Boucher as a driving grape blended again with Alfrochero and, and Aragonese and, and other red grapes to be named later, but also um, blended with Aragonese and other things as a primary blending grape without being the most um, significant percentage. So lion share blended, they do exist pure. You'll always know these wines, whether they participate as a player or independently simply because of their, their really dense uh, volume and high level of color.
0: Hmm. Very interesting. So um, can you, can you go back through a little bit of the history of winemaking in the region? Because obviously, you know, we, we, you talked a little bit about, some cool, you know, the, the cool fact of people actually discovering grapes and naming them after the person who was originally growing them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know this is a region, obviously, that uses a lot of amphora, that has a, a rich history of doing that for a very long time. How long has wine been made in this region and how has it evolved?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a, a, a I'm glad you asked that question. It, you know, a lot of people sort of think of everything as if, if it's an old region, it must have started, you know, uh, European wise, you know, during the, the times of the Romans and all that. But mm-hmm. you could actually go back for, fans of European history go back. Uh, past the Phoenicians to actually the Tartessians as a tribe who were the first people to sort of establish grape growing and rudimentary winemaking there. But, um, and it existed through various tribes, but it was really the Romans who, as they came across and uh, conquered uh, virtually all of the world at that time, who really brought winemaking as a bonafide tradition uh, to the area. And a lot of the techniques that, that, that they brought with them, such as amphoras, which uh, came from uh, old Rome at the time, and even some of the tools that are used out in the field for uh for um uh harvesting and stuff like that date back to to roman times so uh it goes back a long period of time they have a long tradition again long before you know t- stainless steel and oak barrels they were using these um you know taglios tabato or these big uh clay pots some of which literally um you know they they, they come they're sort of like I always tell people that amphoras in general are a lot like uh, steel drums. You know, each one has a different timber or a different tone because the clay itself is molded by, for lack of better words, by hand or very carefully so that, you know, you could have seven different amphoras and they could be the exact same size and visually look the same. But each one um, is going to be a little bit different. So Mm -hmm. that goes back a long way and has been rebirth but then over time obviously winemaking evolved um into you know the rest of the european tradition um, as as europe grew um, and wines were being made in the you know 1600s and 1700s and all the way through um, they didn't have i mean they had phylloxera issues too um, and have grown up since then but it but it really dates back in terms of you know for lack of better words ground zero um, most people would associate it with roman times
1: and you know, it's interesting to me that you mentioned Amphora because we think about you know that as a, a sort of uh an old and new tradition all at once kind of. Um but I'm curious because another thing that seems interesting about the Alentejo is is the um kind of connection to cork and to and mm-hmm. to cork forests. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, well the Amphora tradition and what's what's very interesting is you know amphoras are all sort of the rage now and not only are they sort of uh making a comeback in places um like Alentejo where you know, in the southern part of it particular, which is what they call, you know, talia is the word for T-A-L-H-A is the word for amphora down in that part of the word. You know, people have them in their basements and in their cellars. And, you know, again, people grow grapes and made their own wine. They would have their own amphoras and make their own wine too. And now, of course, because they're the rage, people literally go around towns in Vidigera and places like that and knock on people's doors saying, you got any extra talias that you're not using here? Because we'd like to buy them and all that. But today, uh, amphoras are huge, Um, not only are they made in uh, Portugal uh, from from Alentejo but people are using uh, new Talias, there are are actually Talias made of resin now that are being used and experimented with that have porosity Talias have been used of course in Italy uh, and the northeast towards the the Slovenian border and stuff like that and and all over, but Portugal along with some um, smaller parts of Spain and Turkey probably have the longest continuous tradition of making it that they didn't stop ever they always started to make it during the Roman it continued along the way, so it's very much in their DNA uh, in that part of the world, and they are, in fact, um, leaders. And for lack of better words, revitalizing uh, certainly in uh, Western Europe that technique again. But to your point, you now the Alentejo is vast, and it's not just about grapes. So although um, they make significant volumes of wine, and they are mm-hmm. what I would call sort of the the people's choice award winners. Um, more people drink Alentejanu wines in Portugal than any other region of provenance for their day-to-day drinking but they also have vast uh, amounts of, of of grains planted and vast amounts of uh, of trees and specifically cork trees as you pointed out they are uh, you know the providers of of roughly a third of the world's cork comes from uh, the Alentejo area which is great not only from the vantage point of having good quality cork in the world but it's a natural renewable reusable recyclable uh source and one that we now know is actually um not only carbon neutral, but carbon positive in the sense that they absorb more CO2 than they put out. I mean, it's a great, it's a great uh, uh, thing. And then also, you know, the other things that people don't know about, like, you know, this, this, the whole pato negro, the, the, you know, the black acorn, hoofed acorn-eating pig that people think is associated with Spain actually came from the Alentejo and was, was brought down there. So it's a tremendous resource and breadbasket of uh, all sorts of cool things beyond grapes and wine.
1: Wow. Well, you mentioned the most important thing to me with, with talking about this, which is food, mm-hmm. uh, because I had the opportunity, uh, you guys were kind enough to send some wines to to Adam and to me, uh, mm-hmm. and I had the opportunity to taste the wines, and, and in tasting them, uh, along with enjoying them, I thought, god damn, I am hungry. Uh, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, as is the case for lots of different European wines and European wine regions, you know, the, the wines certainly... Um, sort of co evolve with the cuisine. So can you talk a little bit about the, the food of the region and what maybe some uh, classic pairings uh, from the Alentejo are for some of these wines?
2: Absolutely. Well, well, certainly, it's very much of a food centric area. Um, The people and I would highly encourage, you know, when it's safe for all of us to get back on airplanes and go to places like that. The Alentejo, although it seems like you're in the middle of nowhere, is about a 90 minute train ride from Lisbon. So you can literally land at the Lisbon Airport, you know, hop over, catch a train at a local station and be there in in literally less than a couple of hours. But it feels like, you know, it's rural, it's pastoral, it's Pacific. Um, It's old. Again, you'll see Roman ruins. And stuff like that throughout throughout the area. But it's very simple too. You know, it's not it's not the big city. It's it's you know, they're very happy in their more, um, uh, not even suburban, but just very rural lifestyle. Lots of uh, sweeping uh, fields and rolling hills uh, that are there. Um, and as far as the food goes, you know, they take advantage of a lot of these things. They have, like I said, lots of grains. So therefore a lot of, uh, you know, it's famous for breads uh, in that part of the world, but also famous for cattle, uh, great beef, but also pork, as I alluded to earlier, and interesting vegetables. And it's, um I always tell the what's interesting for me, personally, and I'm not saying this simply because I I like these people and I I work with them a lot, but it's my favorite food region of all of Portugal. And I say that not because it's the fanciest, you know, there's no three-star Michelin restaurants, uh, you know, at every corner and, and things like that, but it's comfort food, you know, it's comfort food at its finest. And I think especially in these times right now, I know for me, that when times get tough, you know, you gravitate towards your pastas and pizzas and roast chickens and very simple types of food, and that's where a lot of Portugal's base food comes from. So whether it's their, you know, most classic soup, which is one called a sorda, which is a very rich uh, broth with uh, leftover bread, kind of, you know, that's thrown in it to reconstitute it, and and uh, crushed garlic, and you know, you can put, uh, you know, green. Uh, herbs and stuff in it and anything else you want there. There, But that's a classic dish of the area. Um, uh, roasts of all sorts from pork and, and, and beef uh, served alongside with something called migas. Migas is basically uh, a sort of blend of uh, leftover meats and bread that's sort of put together almost in sort of like a dense Uh, side dish, something kind of like a very rough polenta, if you will, but studded with vegetables and meat and and different kinds of migas are made and served alongside and stuff like that. But it's very rustic, uh, delicious food. And it seems to work well with the wines because the wines themselves um, are are wines without pretense, although certainly some of the most amazing wines uh, in Portugal. But some of their most famous wines, be it Petamanca or Mutau or things like that come from the Alentejo. But the, the, the everyday drinking, again, people's choice award-winning wines of there are, are just tasty, delicious, honest. You know, I, I, you know in, in, in uh, Portugal uh, and in Alentejo, you know, wine tastes like wine, food tastes like food, bread tastes like bread. Um, and there's something just sort of very gratifying and comforting about it.
0: I'm like really starving now. So thanks, Welcome to Evan. my world, Adam. Well, and I just ate lunch too. So I should be like fully satiated. But then like Evan just was like, really? Whew. So Evan, I'm going to give you a task here. Yep. I want you to sell me. Mm-hmm. So basically I'm an American consumer, right? There's so much wine on the shelf, right? And I get that, that this region is, you know, the most consumed in Portugal, why should I drink it? Or if I'm, you know, one of the amazing members of the Trade Listens, to the podcast, you know, weekly, or why should I sell this wine? Why should I sell the wines in this region? What makes this region so special?
2: Yeah, well, well first and foremost, and I think Alentejo, very much like many wine regions of the world, makes the most sense and gives anybody the greatest level of emotional connection if you do have an opportunity to go there, walk the vineyards go to the wineries, meet the people, and eat all that. So it's a, it's it's an area, I think, that will connect more so than when you do it. But I think one of the things that's very enjoyable, you know, I, one of the other areas of the world that I love and I have the pleasure of working a lot with is the Rhone Valley. Um, and the Rhone Valley, you know, the red wines are delicious. Um, and whether they they run from the top of the line, you know, things like you would find in the north, like Hermitage and, and uh, Côte Trottie and stuff like that. As I said before, you do have some of the most um, well-regarded uh, of wines coming from uh, the Alentejo, whether it's uh, Pedamanca or Cartusha or Muchao, uh are, are wines that come from this area and are considered to be amongst the best wines of the entire country, the most interesting, the most uh, flavorful, the most complex. But so much of the wine um, is everyday drinking wine and very much the way it's impossible to find somebody who you give them a really good glass of Cote du Rhone and they say, meh, don't really like that that much. It's just tasty, delicious stuff, be it red, be it white, or even be it rosé. I would say that's true for Portugal as well too, in terms of the, 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 you know, the bottle that you buy very inexpensively or moderately is going to give you that, that sheer pleasure factor. And while they might focus on grapes like say, you know, Grenache and Cunoise and all that down in the Southern Rhone, here you have again, these wonderful combinations of, of Aragonese Nalfreshero and Alicante Boucher for the Reds, and Anton Weiss, Narintu, and Social, and things like that for the Valdelio, for the whites, that make for these just sort of delicious. Uh, flavorful wines. Coming from a very warm part of the world, very much again like the Rhone Valley or perhaps the Languedoc, um, the wines tend to be fairly generous. So a lot of people like bigger wines. So if you tend to be somebody who likes all of your wines at 8 to 11% alcohol, you probably won't be very happy. But if you like your your red wines generous and your white wines flavorful and moving to generous. This is going to be an area for you. And then also, like I said um, before, when we talked about the grapes, you know, the grapes are fairly unique. So for people who are into discovery and, you know, do I need to have another Cabernet Sauvignon? Do I need to have another Chardonnay? Uh, Do I need to have another, you know, Zinfandel or whatever? These areas provide discovery, both of grapes and flavors that are different uh, to people in terms of, uh, you know, the the usual trailhead that they're used to walking on and drinking down, but also uh, grapes that in many places you don't find anywhere else, as I said before, um, that provide interesting intrigue and flavorful differences that you're simply not going to find in other parts of the wine. And they also represent great value. So even at the top end, you know their most expensive wines, when compared to their counterparts in other parts of the world, still prevent present you know they, they punch above their proverbial weight in terms of giving you great value for the money great flavor for the for the bottle and again, as you uh, mentioned earlier, fabulous food friendliness so I would tell people that are a into discovery b into unique flavors c as you both mentioned um into food friendliness the wines are almost Architected there, you know, you will never find wines that are over oaked, overworked, over overdone in this part of the world. And you know, and today, um, and I'll finish up quickly here on this. But today, to me, one of the things is an avid wine drinker, and I know you guys both drink your fair share of wines too. <laughs> I'm I'm um, saddened by wines that are losing their sense of place and whether, you Mm -hmm. know, I'm saddened to have a wine that may be made out of a particular grape variety that comes from somewhere in Spain, for example, but is vinified in such a way that it tastes like it could have been made in Napa Valley or the Um, Mm Barossa. And I like wines that taste like wine of a place. And the thing about Alentejo is you taste those wines, you pop them open um, and they, boy, they don't taste like they really could be made in many other places, except where they are from.
1: And one last quick question for you, Evan, along those notes for our listeners who are interested in giving these a try. Obviously in some parts of the U.S., um, there's a wide range of Portuguese wines available, but for people who might not be in a major city or just might not know where to go looking, are there a few kind of... um, larger producers or, or at least widely distributed uh, wines from the Alentejo that they could look out for, uh, whether it's at the local wine shop or even at a grocery store, potentially?
2: Yeah, a- a- absolutely. Portugal Portugal is not going to have as many, for lack of better words, household name wines uh, as you're going to find in, in other parts of the world. The, the, probably the most um, uh, available brand Across the country, and one that you can even find uh, in some of the larger stores would be a brand called Esperau, Esporao. E S P O uh, R A O. Esporao um, makes wines of various different grapes, whites and reds, and things like that. Various different price points as well, and they're fairly well widely distributed. Um, they have a nice sort of touch of the old and the new. Uh, their wine, they're they're driving. Uh, winemaker is a gentleman named David Baverstock who moved over from Australia years ago and brings sort of a new world sensibility to the old world fruit but Sandra Aldes who is the day-to-day winemaker there makes sure that everything still tastes Portuguese and very good another brand would be Fita Preta F-I-T-A-P-R-E-T-A Those are the great wines of Antonio Massanita, who also makes um, some killer wines out of the uh, Azores as well. But um, his wines are very cool. He makes some sort of very forward-thinking wines using Portuguese grapes. He makes a wine uh, actually out of Toriga Nacional, which is a grape many of us associate more with the North and the Douro and in the Dow, but he makes it in the Alentejo. And he makes a wine called Nua, N-U-A, which literally translates to nude, which is just the purest Form of uh, of that grape that I've ever find, I've, I've ever tasted. Uh, he makes that in the Douro, but brings that same sensibility here. Um, Joao Portugal Ramos, so Joao J O A O Portugal, as in Portugal and Ramos. His wines are are, are widely available. And then finally Rocim R O C I M, uh, which along with Esporao I think are the two brands. I see most often Rosim uh, makes tremendous uh, wines, both whites and reds, uh, and with a focus primarily on uh, Portuguese grapes. But all of these houses, um, with the exception perhaps of Esperal, really don't um, spend a lot of time with international grapes, which is something that you see a bit of in the Alentejo, but not as much as you see in other parts of the world. There's not this great influx of Cabernet and Chardonnay uh, into uh, this part of Portugal.
1: Awesome. Well, Evan, thank you so much. It was really, uh, super interesting to learn about a region that, you know, at most for me had been maybe a place on a map that I didn't really think a whole Mm -hmm. lot about. Uh, and, uh, but I am, uh, definitely, uh, excited to continue to taste the wines that you sent and, uh, and to try, uh, to take a trip over there when, uh, when the world permits it, (laughs) which would be delightful.
2: That would, yeah, I, I, it'll be well worth your time when you do. And uh, until then, we can at least uh, live vicariously through the bottles. And if people want to you know, track down some Portuguese recipes, if you just Google it, there's some wonderful classic Alan Tijana recipes that people can make at home.
0: Sorry, yeah. Evan, thanks so much. This was, this was awesome. Um, yeah, you've, you've definitely made me want to go out and drink more of these wines. Obviously, as I've already said, you've made me very hungry. Um, so yeah, I appreciate your, your time and, and your willingness to share all of your you know, amazing wealth of knowledge and everyone out there listening at home we hope that you you know enjoy this bonus episode again you're welcome and zach i'll I'll see you back here next week sounds great thanks so much for listening to the vine pair podcast if you enjoy listening to us every week please leave us a review or rating on itunes spotify or wherever it is that you get your podcasts it really helps everyone else discover the show now for the credits vine pair is produced by myself and Zach Jabal. It is also mixed and edited by him. Yeah, Zach, we know you do a lot. I'd also like to thank the entire Buy and Pair team, including my co-founder, Josh, and our associate editor, Kathleen. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.